Wayne. It's good to have you back on Good Heavens. Hi, Dan. Let's give it a try. Yes, let's get going. We are going to talk about star navigation today, not in a technical way, but just some pretty cool examples of how the stars lead us and guide us around the planet. And That's ha- right. What, what good are the stars anyway? A lot of people don't even see them anymore, Dan. You, you can't. But for the longest time, uh, mankind has navigated his way around the globe by means of celestial navigation. And so we're going to talk about today, Wayne, birds navigating by the stars and canoeing in the open waters of the Pacific Ocean navigating by the stars that's, and the Apollo right. astronauts navigating by the stars. So yes. it's going to be a neat story if you if you don't know anything about this. We're, we're, it's not going to be technical. Don't worry about that. Uh, we are just going to talk about some neat examples of how uh, people, living creatures of all kinds, navigate by the stars. But, but first, Wayne, we're going to read from uh, Scripture. You've got something from Genesis there. Too. Right. Genesis chapter 1, f- verses 14 and 15. Uh, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. That's in Genesis. So it's clear that from a biblical point of view, the stars have a purpose or several purposes, correct? Right, yeah, right. Unlike in modern cosmology where the stars don't, they're just there, but they don't have a purpose. A lot of scientists who don't believe in God don't see there to be any purpose in the universe right and so they would say our sun is a star but it's really uh an accident that it is there that that it's that our system our solar system turned out so that we could live here is an accident a coincidence an accidents yeah but but nothing purposeful it wasn't put there on purpose or designed on purpose but genesis tells us something else it says that the lights are there for signs for signs like a stop sign or a speed sign or a uh, exit sign or wherever we're going, signs and seasons and days and years. So that's that's the genesis of it. God created the stars for a purpose. And uh, I want to read something from Matthew, something that uh, you probably hear a lot about in uh, around Christmas time, Wayne. That's the star of Bethlehem. You and I right. have uh, looked into all of the uh, explanations and stories that are behind what this star might have been. I just want to read uh, from Matthew's gospel quickly. It says, uh, in chapter 2, Matthew begins, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, magi, or wise men, from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So, a lot of effort has been put into trying to figure out, Wayne, what astronomical event this could be. What are some things that people have suggested over the years that you know about? Oh, they've talked about a conjunction of the planets uh, or a supernova, uh, for example. The conjunction would be when two planets in the sky come close together, almost quite looking like a a single point of light, right? Yeah, right. But no conjunction really ever, if, if it's a conjunction of planets, you can always tell Uh, that they're two different planets, especially over time. Um, But a comet, maybe, a supernova, a comet, a supernova, an asteroid, some astronomical phenomenon is oftentimes uh, thought to be what that star was. But the Bible doesn't tell us what that star is. And in fact, 
As you read Matthew's account, the star moves in a way that no planet or comet or asteroid or, or star moves that we know of. Right. Yeah, I don't think it was uh, any natural phenomena. I think it was a miracle. I think for me personally, when you try to interpret uh, natural phenomenon into the star of Bethlehem, uh, what you it's like trying to come up with a naturalistic explanation for why Jesus rose from the dead. And really, I think the star, like the resurrection, is a supernatural occurrence. Yeah. Uh, there was an astronomer by the name of E.W. Maunder who lived uh, over 100 years ago, and he wrote a book called The Astronomy of the Bible. And Maunder has this to say about the star of Bethlehem. What sort of star it was that led the wise men, how they learnt from it that the king of the Jews was born, how it went before them, how it stood over where the young child was, we do not know. The star, whatever its physical nature, was of no importance except as a guide to the birthplace of the infant Jesus. Information about it would have drawn attention from the object of the narrative. It would have given to a mere signpost the importance which belonged only to the word made flesh. I think that's wise counsel. Right, and Dan, I think uh, it's important to just note that the wise men had done enough observation of the stars that they knew when there was something unusual in the sky. Yeah. And then I think they may have connected that with the Old Testament prophecy. And so that's how they had the idea of making this trip. So that star, whatever it was that guided them, they knew it was special and they knew what it meant. Right. And they followed it. What information they had and how they knew that we, we don't know. But uh, that just kind of begins our little episode here of, of um, taking a look at the stars and how stars lead us. And I think we both agree, Wayne, the conclusion that stars should ultimately, the light of stars ultimately should lead us to a knowledge of who Christ is, right? Now, the stars themselves don't do that. That's a general revelation in nature that it reveals something of God's glory. But you can't just be an astronomer, look at the stars and get the gospel story out of it. But the light of the stars should serve as a sign for God's glory. In fact, that's what Psalm says, that the heavens declare the glory of God. So what we're going to do today is talk about some specific examples of how the stars have been used for navigation purposes, starting with birds. Wayne, you have a fascinating story that you shared with me. Yes, Dan, if birds can figure this out, we should be able to figure this out, right? <laughs> right, right. Uh, so... Uh, so scientists have been fascinated with birds, and, and sometimes birds, when they migrate for the winter, they travel a long distance. Uh, so birds uh, observe the position of the sun in the sky. They notice when the days are getting shorter, mm -hmm. like in the, towards the winter and the fall. And uh, some birds even have uh, a piece of iron or magnetite a mineral in their beak. And they can use this to sense the Earth's magnetic field. That's amazing. So they, they could tell north uh, from that, more or less. They can smell the north. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> and, and some of them uh, can even navigate at night. And so they probably notice where the North Star is and the motion of the stars. Yeah, because uh, when you, when you uh, some of these songbirds, now these are, I looked into this too. You, you sent me the article and then I, I looked into it. A little bit more myself and I, I realized that uh, one of the reasons you don't think songbirds travel at night but they do because if you're traveling three four thousand miles which some of these birds actually do uh, or, or more uh, traveling at night it's cooler uh, there's less predators about 
And um, but traveling at night for if you're a bird traveling at night, you don't have the sun. So how is it that birds know their direction it's, uh, with the beak? They have the, the magnetite in their beak, but they also have learned a technique uh, that you found out about through. They did some studies in the 50s and the 60s, which is fascinating, right? That uh, came up with one way in which they figured out how birds actually migrate by the stars. What did you, what did you find there? There was a scientist who decided to take uh, birds and put them in a planetarium, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> and he, start, he turned on the planetarium. Uh-huh. It makes the, the stars rotate on the dome and right, on the right. screen there. And the, the bird figured out its direction. It, by, by the motion, the natural motion of the, in the planetarium, the bird acclimated toward Polaris, right? Right. So, so it looked at the North Star, but it looked at the spinning of, yeah. of the circumpolar stars that were around Polaris. And so I, I'm not sure if it may have gotten all confused and went back outside again. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but they, I, I don't know if it's the same study, but I read, I think it was in the 50s or the 60s, where it, it probably was the same study, where the gentleman reversed the direction or he changed he changed he made uh, Betelgeuse I think uh-huh. it was the North Star put it in the position and made all the stars spin around Betelgeuse okay and the bird went after in that direction and turned around and went south so if the bird knows which way north was if that's uh-huh. the fixed star then I can fly I can turn my back to it and go south and so when he changed Polaris uh, into Betelgeuse and made all the stars revolve around Betelgeuse the birds oriented themselves around Betelgeuse so that, wow. was, that that but that's amazing because the birds can 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 pick up and another lady that I read uh, said that birds can young birds know this in about two to three weeks they figure out the rotational aspect of, of the stars and the circumpolar stars and Polaris and all of that uh, they figure it out pretty soon and uh, what's amazing is these birds go from one spot in the north to one spot in the south. And then they make the trip back, and they usually end up in the very same tree or the very same nesting area that they did when they left, which is amazing. Right. This is amazing. Uh, Dan, there's a a really good video about flight. It's a a video by Illustra Media, Flight, the Genius of Birds. And it has a really good uh, story in there about the Arctic tern. The Arctic tern. The Arctic tern flies from Antarctica all the way up to... Uh, somewhere up like Norway or Greenland or something. Oh, my goodness. They're flying almost pole to pole. Wow. And uh, so there, uh, there's a guy who finally was able to attach some electronic uh, radio devices to the, some of their feet. Uh-huh. And, and he was able to monitor them with, over the whole trip. He found out that there were two different paths that they took. Some of them take a sort of western path, uh-huh. uh, and then and then some take a more of eastern path. But some of them go along South and North America and up, and some of them go up or around Africa and Europe. Wow, and up that direction. But they do this at, when they're flying at night. They do this by orienting themselves to Polaris, the North. And they country. also know certain places in the ocean where there is lots of fish, where they can stop and, and get something to eat. So they know where the restaurants are along the way. And that's amazing. <laughs> and they figure this all out, and they travel a huge distance. They 
they stuff themselves and eat a lot of food before they take off on their long trip, and then they just go and they fly and fly and fly. Kind of like human beings on a road trip. <laughs> yeah, except they, they they don't stop as much as we do. No, and I, you know, if, if I was in Antarctica and I had to get to Norway, I'm not sure I could do it by myself. <laughs> I know, right. <laughs> you know, just being out in the open water with uh, with without a knowledge of how to, to, to travel through the water and where to go, and that that's amazing that, that, that the Lord has equipped equipped these birds with that kind of knowledge. So one bird expert I read uh, said that it's a marvel that birds can glean a north-south orientation by learning the rotational pattern of stars. And I think it is. It reflects the mind of the Creator. He gave these little ones. Remember that the Scripture says, Jesus says in Matthew, that consider the birds of the air, right? Right. Look at how they neither spin nor toil, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He gives them that capacity to know uh, where the food comes from. And, and so God takes care of the birds and gives them the ability to navigate uh, by the light of his stars, just like he gives us that same ability. He, has, uh, he loves us. We're more than, or worth a few more dollars than uh, many sparrows. <laughs> right. So we can learn a few techniques that, are, that make it possible. We can learn to be observant. And uh, part of the ancient people that navigated on the sea, Dan, was they just learned to be observant. That's, that's the key, is just paying attention to your surroundings. You have some pretty cool examples of what life was like navigating on the open waters before the advent of GPS satellites and technology that we now take for granted. How did people get along uh, in the oceans? How did they do that? Right. Now, this is interesting about the Norsemen from long, long ago, like Vikings and those people. They, since they come from the north, they would have long periods of months, Dan, where there were, it would be cloudy and they may not be able to see the stars. Right. So guess what they would do to find their way? They would take birds with them on the ship. I'll be darned. So if it would be sailing for a ways and, you know, and you'd think, well, I'm probably close to the land, but which direction it is, I'm not quite sure. Okay, so this there was a guy from Iceland long ago. His name was Raven... Floki, I'm not sure of the pronunciation. Okay. And he uh, he was given this name because he would actually take a a hungry raven on the ship with him. Wow. So he would sail out for a ways, and then he knew he was somewhere close to land. So uh-huh. he would uh, he wanted to find the land. He would let his bird go, and this was a hungry bird. So he the bird would go find food, and then it would fly to land, and so he could follow the bird to the land. Wow. Just that reminds me of uh, Noah and the dove. Right. Yeah. And so this was if you couldn't even see stars, maybe it was cloudy mm-hmm. or something, they would do this. There was the ancient Phoenicians. Who yes, were, this is a fascinating this story. This is in the more Mesopotamia, uh, on the, just west of Israel, mm-hmm. along the coast. is mm-hmm. where the Phoenicians were common. And, and they became pretty skilled at navigating. These were ancient sea navigators. This would be yeah. in the Mediterranean world. So they would observe more the, about the sun and the stars. They would know of what you know the angle of the sun and the sky based on the seasons, and they would they would look for certain bright stars mm-hmm. to guide them. And they had a term for east and west. Their their term for east was Asu, and west was Ereb. Huh. That's for that's like sunrise and sunset. Sun, sunrise and sunset. And, uh-huh. and those words might even be related to our names for Asia and Europe. Wow. Asu and Ereb. I'll be darned. Sunrise and sunset. 
Wow, we're, we're more ancient than we think. Yeah. yeah. Now I know that one of the fascinating things that we both had talked about, I think we mentioned this before in an earlier podcast, about the uh, Polynesians and Hawaiian Islanders who uh, have this ancestral technique of navigating the open water in a canoe several thousand miles. Right. And they did this in the 70s, I, I understand. Yeah, so I think it's really interesting when, when people do things like this. They try to unravel the puzzle. How did people do this long, long ago? And in our modern day and age, we have all kinds of great techniques and equipment. And uh-huh. we have GPS and all this stuff. It's always an interesting challenge to go back and do things the old way. The old-fashioned you know? way, right, right. So there was a, in 1976, there was a team of Hawaiians who uh, built an outrigger canoe like the ancient Polynesians, mm-hmm. and they they showed that it is possible to navigate across the open ocean to from one island to another. And uh, so I have a, a quote about this, uh, Dan. This is from a PBS from PBS.org. It's a Nova uh, website article. This is mm-hmm. in 1976. It says. Using no instruments, the canoe team navigated as their ancestors did by the stars. They had no maps, no sextants, no compasses, and they navigated by observing the ocean and sky, reading the stars and swells. The paths of stars and rhythms of the ocean guided them by night, and the color of the sky and the sun, the shapes of clouds, and the direction from which the swells were coming guided them by day. Several days away from an island, they were able to determine the exact day of landfall. Swells would tell them that there was land ahead, and the surest telltale sign would be the presence of birds making flights out to sea seeking food. By sailing from Hawaii to Tahiti, the team was able to prove that it was possible for Polynesian peoples to navigate over thousands of miles from island to island. That's amazing. I have a little bit more detail. You got me interested in this. I had a little bit more detail on this. One of the chief navigational stars that they use, the outrigger canoers use, was a star they called Hokula. Hokule-a. I think it's how they say it. Hokule-a, which means the star of joy or the star of gladness. Mm-hmm. Do you know what star that is by any chance? I think you do. Uh, Arcturus? Arcturus, the star in Buotes, the, yeah. the, the shepherd or the sheep herder or the, the cattle herder. But Arcturus was known as the star of joy. It's one of the brightest stars in the sky. It's out right now in this season of May. You can go outside at night. It's one of the brighter stars that, that are above us right now. Um, actually, a little backstory. The... Arcturus was used to light the World's Fair in Chicago in 1933. Really? Yeah. The, the idea was the, 19, the 1893 World's Fair was held in Chicago. Forty years later, it was held in Chicago again. But Arcturus being about 40 uh, light years away from us, in, in 1933, uh, they worked out this thing to where the light from Arcturus which would would come into the telescope at the observatory near the World's Fair. And they created a way to which the, when the light from that star hit a plate, it switched on the light of the World's Fair. Now, what was cool was <laughs> the idea was that the light that turned on the fair lights had taken 40 years to get 
to Chicago because mm-hmm. in 1893, when they had the first World's Fair, so when they had the first World's Fair in 1893, the light of the star Arcturus was coming to them, started its 40-mile journey. So oh. 40 years later, <laughs> that light turns on the second World's Fair in Chicago. So that oh. was that was uh, Arcturus. But yeah, they, they, it is. And they so the Polynesians... Um, the Hawaiians, they, they re, they did, this wasn't just something they did 2,000 years ago. This was something that was recreated in 1976 that people actually did. And I want to read a, another quote from that. Uh, from that uh, there's a, a gentleman who is a, uh, by the name of Wade Davis. He's a National Geographic explorer. And he has a book called The Wayfinders, Why Ancient Wisdom Matters in the Modern World. Yeah. And he, he gives a little detail. He actually went along... I don't know if it was that trip or another one because I know they do this sometimes. It's not just a one-time deal, but they've done this uh, a few times, I think. But anyway, he went on, Mr. Davis went on one of these trips and he describes it this way, quote, so Mr. Davis is actually in the canoe going on this journey with him. He says, enshrouded by the night, the canoe itself became the needle of a compass that was the sky. Behind us sat the navigator, a young woman named Ka'iluani, uh, she was a protege of a woman named Nainoa, and she would remain awake for 22 hours a day for the entire voyage, sleeping only for a few fleeting moments when the mind demanded a rest. And he goes on to say, Ka Iluani, like her mentor Nainona, all of them are experienced as a crew. They could name and follow some 220 stars in the night sky. Uh, she knew and could track all the constellations, Scorpio, the Southern Cross, Orion, the Pleiades, and the North Star Polaris. So there's this incredible knowledge in these people that they could name 220 stars and that they could, they could open navigate the open waters of the Pacific by night by just knowing the stars. That is pretty cool. And I read a, a blog. There was a, a guy named Steve. I reached out to him because he did a really neat piece on this. He said, uh, more than 20 centuries ago, it seemed like the Polynesians knew more than we do. They had committed the patterns and rhythms of the night sky to memory. They had taken the sky into their heads and hearts, and by this found their way across an ocean to a new future. They looked up and found their way forward, simple yet elegant, plain yet stunning in its geographic reach. A guiding star, what a concept. (laughs) Hmm. Isn't that cool? You know, the idea that we we are guided by stars just seems so foreign to us who have uh, cell phones, right? We're guided by, a, I call my phone Google Lady. <laughs> right. Yeah. When I get lost somewhere, I say, you know, you just you just tap in your phone, you say, hey, give me directions to this place, and she, and she says, I will navigate you here, and you know, there you are. It's pretty cool. That's right. Yeah, but uh, when I'm on Texas back roads, sometimes I live out in the country, and I'm not exactly sure where I'm going. If it's a clear night, I like to look, out the, look up at my windshield and find a familiar constellation and say, mm-hmm. okay, now I know I'm going north, south, east, or west. So I, I try to do that, but there's no way I could canoe across the ocean <laughs> I'm not quite there yet <laughs> yeah um, there's another example that's uh, more familiar to to our time um, that we all know about the Apollo astronauts that's right also learned how to go to the moon by star navigation that's right so uh, the Apollo astronauts were were given uh, specially made star charts that were really pretty small. You could hold it in your hand. And they, they took these on the uh, spacecraft, both on their way to the moon and when they came back from the moon. So on the lamb, lunar lamb that landed on the moon had to blast off, off of the surface of the moon to come back up into orbit. 
and even in that uh, land, lander limb uh, that, that took off from the moon, they had to have a star chart so they could know their direction. Wayne, you know, the I was I was one. No, I wasn't even one yet. Let's see, Apollo was Apollo 11 was July of 1969. Right. So I was not yet one years old when they were buzzing their way to the moon. I won't ask you how old you were. <laughs> you don't. Have <laughs> I, to... <laughs> I would have been 11. Okay. Yeah. So you got a decade on me. But um, <laughs> shortly after his return from the moon, Michael Collins. He's the one of the three. There was Michael Collins. Neil Armstrong and Edwin Buzz Aldrin. He was called Buzz, by the way, because his little little sister couldn't say brother. Okay. So he she called him Buzzer. <laughs> so that's how he got his name, not from his haircut, but from his sister being unable to say uh, brother. Anyway, Michael Collins was the one in the uh, lunar reconnaissance vehicle. So the, it went around the lunar orbiter. Right. Um, went around. It was named Columbia, and it went around. It was the uh, taxi that would pick up Neil and Buzz after they launched from the surface of the moon. Right. Um, Collins wrote a book called Carrying the Fire. And if you want any, the best book on Apollo mission to the moon, I think, is Michael Collins's book, Carrying mm. the Fire. It's a classic. It's very well written. It's witty. It's humorous. And it gives you lots of cool details about what went on as mm. they went through their, their training. But uh, Collins talks about, you know, we mentioned earlier about the birds. Guess where the astronauts learned the stars? Uh, in their training. In their training, in yeah. a planetarium. Yeah. In a planetarium. They, too, learned how to orient themselves by looking at the stars in the planetarium. Because you right. don't always have good weather when you're looking outside. But the planetarium could give them different perspectives of the stars as they needed to learn them. So the Apollo 11 astronauts had to memorize 37 individual star names and their positions. And these stars were hand-selected by engineers at MIT. Mm -hmm. So they programmed these into a computer. And Collins says, for my own amusement, and this is in the book, quote, for my own amusement, I list the 37, each, giving each of the octal number by which we knew it. So the computer couldn't count to 10, he says, but it used a base of eight. So Collins gives us this list of stars that he had to learn. So it goes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. 11, 12, okay. 13, because the computer programming back then was kind uh -huh. of, uh, was, was limited. So just a few of the star names. So Alpharats, Difta, Navi, Arkshnar, Arkshnar, I think that's how you say it, Polaris, Akamar, Menkar, Merfak, Aldebron, Aldebaran, Rigel, Capella, Canopus, Sirius, Procyon, Regor, uh, I could go on and on, uh, Denebola. Those are, I mean, it sounds like a foreign language. I mean, well, it is because most of those are in Arabic, right? Yeah. But they programmed those into the computer. And then they, like you said, they carried the star charts to be able to see. So they would punch in the number of the star and get a, get a reading from where they were. And that helped them get to the moon and get back from the moon. Right. It's not just the astronauts that have learned about the uh, stars, Dan. It was an article I read about the U.S. Navy. Oh, yeah. You sent that to me. Yeah, the... Uh, so for some years, the Navy and the training of sailors, they got away from teaching people, uh, teaching their sailors star navigation. They used to do it, and then they started relying more on the GPS satellites and the computers, and they developed a great computer system for navigating. They don't call it Google Lady, Dan. <laughs> <But> <laughs> it's a lot more than Google Lady, okay? Yeah, so they have more. a really uh, a much better thing than Google Lady. Yes, but yes. Uh, they, uh, this day and age, there are times when 
things happen to their uh, equipment, their system. You know, there are there are ways of blocking GPS signals yeah, with, you with can, radio devices, uh-huh, uh-huh. and uh, so in case somebody hacks into their system or there's some kind of computer problem. They're training sailors in doing star navigation again. Yeah, how, it, they've been bringing it back. How embarrassing it would be for the U.S. Navy to have a giant aircraft carrier out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, the, the GPS goes down, and nobody knows where they are. <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> how do you do that? So you, you got to go back to the old school, right? To, okay, Admiral, we'll go as long as, as soon as we can figure out which way. <laughs> Anybody know a star name? <laughs> Anybody yeah. got a hungry raven on board? That's right. <laughs> yeah, so there is there is wisdom in the ancient art of, of star navigation. And uh, a lot of people that uh, boat recreationally, uh, who have sailboats and things like that, use, what's the tool, Wayne, that the most common tool that, that, that boaters today, people, we won't get into the technical details, but what is, explain a little bit, just briefly from what you know of what, what they call a sextant. Yes, a sextant is a device with a little, a little telescope on it and it has two mirrors. So you, you look at a star and you, it's a way to measure how high an angle that the star is above the horizon. Okay. So from based on your position on the Earth, your horizon, you can see a certain angle, and then you to the horizon, and you look measure up from that, from the horizon, from the horizontal, up to where the star is. That's what the sextant is for, and then it has another. Some they may have another angle the other direction so you can measure two angles mm-hmm. to get your position uh, of where where to look in the sky at a certain star and from from that position the pointing to that star you can figure out your longitude and latitude on the earth and the sextant has been around a long time in fact uh was it uh one of the primary tools of tycho bra Yes, in fact, he had some. Uh, he made various devices for observing the stars. Uh, uh, um, he had various things. That they had various ways of measuring angles, and he was very clever in, in creating some very good ways of measuring angles by eye. Mm-hmm. And went, to do it by eye and do it accurately is, is a little bit of a challenge. It is. And so he created special instruments. Some of them were kind of large. Yeah, he had three. Because, because we can't. We can't measure uh, accurately without having a long distance and, and light, kind of a sizable piece of equipment to do it. Mm-hmm. And so he had special ways of, of building equipment to do that. And his observatory on on the island that he had, we talked about this in another podcast, that Uranaborg was just like a giant, uh, it was like the medieval NASA yeah. <laughs> or something yes. like that. He was the, the top of cutting edge, top of the line uh, astronomer. Uh, observational astronomer of the time before the advent of the telescope. Right, he built an ideal place to observe the stars, and, and this is without telescopes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, All right. Well, that that's been a brief look at uh, just some of the ways in which people have used the stars to navigate. And I want to conclude with this this story. It's pretty pretty cool. I, I liked it. I, I just ran across this. The astronomer you've heard of him, William Herschel, was a mm-hmm. German-born English astronomer who he and his sister Caroline would do uh, astronomical observations in the resort town, the English resort town of Bath, which is featured prominently in Jane Austen novels. And so Herschel was a music composer as well. And uh, so he, in 1781, discovered the planet Uranus. He made that remarkable discovery. His discovery caught, uh, 
caught the attention of King George III. King George III, of course, being the monarch uh, that oversaw the American Revolution. And uh, so King George heard of Herschel's discovery and became a patron of Herschel. He gave Herschel money, uh, a lot of money in that day and age, to, for Herschel to build a 40-foot telescope. So uh, Herschel had the favor of the king, and one day during the course of the construction of this telescope before the 40-foot metal tube was installed in its giant uh, apparatus that they had created, uh, Herschel and his sister Caroline invited the king and all his entourage out to the place to see the progress of the construction. And this is a true story. Uh, and so the, the, the tube was still on the ground. And among the dignitaries was the king, of course, and also the Archbishop of Canterbury. And this is, this is a, a few years after the Revolutionary War had concluded. I'm not exactly sure what year this was, 1780s at some point. But the king, being curious, uh, decided that he was going to walk through the unfinished tube. So it was kind of narrow, but if you ducked down, you could get inside of it. And so he went into the tube, and the Archbishop followed after him but was a little hesitant maybe because he was claustrophobic or it was a little dark I don't know but so the king the king is inside King George is inside Herschel's telescope tube and he extends his hand to the archbishop and says Lord Bishop take my hand and I will show you the way to heaven <laughs> and that that story was recalled by Herschel's sister Caroline so that <laughs> I read that in a book called The Age of Wonder and I thought well that's a fantastic story but I think it is also a portrait of you know uh, the king inside of a telescope right that 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 the, the star of bethlehem uh that the king of kings and lord of lords actually does that with us he comes down into our little gardens and our little homes in the flesh and makes us look beyond ourselves to something bigger yes and beyond and he yeah. he says take my hand as he did to to, to, to thomas reach yeah. your, reach your fingers in here put your hand here right take my hand look at what i've done and then isaiah god says i will take you by the hand fear not and so i thought that king george inside the telescope was a kind of a, a wonderful metaphor right of the very thing that jesus has done for us coming down in the flesh the word of god the word made flesh becoming a human being extending his hand to ours showing us the way to the heavens. So I think, Wayne, the bottom line lesson for star navigation, what is it? We need to recognize that the stars are signs leading us to the glory of God. They give us, uh, kind of stimulate our imagination and make us consider the God who created it all. And uh, they have a purpose for, for our life. Amen. Amen.